can turn to Romans chapter 3. That's where we'll be. Uh, be. While you're turning there, just let me remind you about what's going on later this week. We have our annual country fair this Thursday at 6 p.m. here at the Southwood campus right here in the parking lot. Excellent outreach opportunity. Now, uh, it was told to me that last week I may have um, made a mistake in my announcement about country fair. I may have mispronounced a key word, so let me just clarify in case you were not sure. Um, we will not be giving your kids booze at the country fair. Apparently that's what I said last week. Uh, we will be having booths where we have games and give them candy, but we will not give them beer with their candy corn. So uh, just in case you were wondering, we will have lots of fun booths for them and candy and all kinds of things. Now, let me please remind you, the country fair is primarily not for us. It will be a blessing to us. Our kids will have fun, but who's the country fair for? It's for the community. For people who don't yet know the Lord or aren't yet plugged into a church, that's who the country fair is designed to reach, to draw them uh, into a, a fun and exciting place for their kids where they can hear the gospel, where they can meet us and find if, if this would be a place where they would like to worship and draw near to the Lord. So please invite your neighbors, invite your friends, invite your kids' friends to the country fair. There are a bunch of those invitation cards in the floor. You can grab a stack of them on your way out if you will give them out to your neighbors and friends. We really want to see lots of people come to the country fair who don't know the Lord or don't have a church home. We'd love to be that for them. Uh, now, speaking of kids, this was a big week in my family. My kids turned two this week. This is a party yesterday. Luke and Gracie turned two. Uh, it's been really neat to see how much Luke and Gracie have grown since their last birthday. Just over the last year, they've grown in size and they've grown in strength and coordination and mobility. But best of all, they have grown in communication. And for those of you parents uh, who have had little kids, you know it is a huge blessing when your kids can tell you why they're screaming than just scream. So it's been a really good thing to happen this year that now my kids can tell me what they want. And actually, this is a really good month for me as a dad because my son, Luke, um, he learned two new words among many others, but two key words this last month. He learned the word dinosaur and astronaut. Um, and I have to tell you as a dad, the fact that my pre-two-year-old son can say astronaut astronaut and dinosaur makes me think I must be doing my job well. It's a banner, banner month for me as a dad. They're learning to communicate well. Now, it has had its hiccups. There's a lot of words that Luke and Gracie will use that they don't really understand. I'll give you an example. Up to uh, about a month ago, Gracie would refer to herself, she would call herself Dewey. Dewey. So if there was a blanket that Gracie wanted, she would say Dewey's blanket or Dewey's toy or Dewey's turn. And Julie and I were trying to figure out what in the world did that come from? Why is Gracie calling herself Dewey? And finally it occurred to us, well, the reason is because when Gracie misbehaves, we say to her, now we don't do that, do we? And so she, <laughs> she, would, <laughs> she would hear that often. We don't throw food, do we? We don't hit our brother, do we? And Gracie just assumed over time that we were referring to her. So all around the house. <laughs> Dewey's blanket, Dewey's turn, Dewey's toy. She used that word without understanding what it meant. Now, actually, that's a mistake that we make in the church all the time. We use words without really understanding what they mean. Especially the big words, the Christian words, the words that you have to say in church. We use them all the time without really understanding them. Words like salvation and worship and glory. Words that are big that you hear all the time, but have you really sat down and studied what that word means? Do you understand the words you use accurately? Well, we're going to answer that question uh, this morning about one of the most important words you'll find anywhere in the Bible, the word faith. Now, all of us have a sense that, that faith is important. 
Faith is somehow at the core of what Christianity is. We use faith all the time. We know it's important, but do we really understand what that word means? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, we know that this idea of faith is important because we saw it last week. Let me review for you where we are so far in Romans. Big idea of Romans, again, is the righteousness of God. We're going to review that every week. The big idea that ties the whole book together is God's righteousness, that God is right in everything he is, his nature, his character, and he is right in everything he does, his actions. Okay, now, God's righteousness presents a problem for us because we are not righteous, We are not righteous. That's what we saw in chapter 1, verse 18. Flip back a page. Chapter 1, verse 18. Paul tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What Paul is telling us is that because God is righteous as judge, he must pour forth wrath, that is God's anger in action, against all human sin against every human being who sins. And then Paul spent the next two chapters proving to us that that includes everyone. Every human being who has ever lived accepting Jesus Christ is a sinner who merits the wrath of God. That is our problem. A righteous God must render justice upon earth and that justice means that all of us merit wrath. That's the problem of sin. But good news, last week we saw God has a solution. God has provided a solution to our sin problem. Look with me, chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Our passage last week. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith and the faithfulness of Christ. Remember, we changed that. Through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What Paul is telling us is that the solution that God has provided is summarized in a key word called justification. God provides justification for sinners. Now, review. What does justification mean? Justification is a courtroom word. It's a word you use when you enter a court of law. Justification is when the judge declares you to be righteous. It's a legal declaration. It means that you have been acquitted of all charges. In the eyes of the court, you are in the right God offers that legal standing of justification to sinners like us. Now, how does God do that? God is righteous. How is this not a huge miscarriage of justice when the righteous judge declares sinners like us to be righteous? How can he do this? Well, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what we focused on last week. God can declare sinners to be righteous because Jesus was faithful in our place. He lived a perfectly faithful life. He died a perfectly faithful death. His faithful death is our propitiation. Remember that key word, propitiation. It means to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus stood in our place. He took our sins upon himself and he satisfied the wrath of God so that God can be just and justifier, so that God can be righteous and yet declare sinners righteous. That's the good news of God's solution to sin. He offers justification, legal standing of eternal righteousness through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's God's part in the solution. He gives us justification. That's what we looked at last week, God's part. This week we want to look at our part. What is our part in the solution to sin? God offers justification. What do we have to do to receive it? Now Paul hinted at this back in verse 22. It's for all those who believe. 
And then Paul's going to really camp on that word believe. He's going to take it and talk about it from 327 all the way to the end of chapter 4. That's going to be our passage actually for the next two weeks. Uh, If you've been looking online to see what to expect, we're planning on covering this whole massive passage today. That was ridiculous. Brian and I realized that middle of yesterday afternoon. And so we've decided to uh, pause for one week and we're going to take two full weeks on this passage, 327 through the end of chapter 4 to talk about our part in the solution to sin this belief, this faith. Now, Paul gives us a summary of the big idea. What is our part in the solution to sin? Chapter 3, verse 28. This is the key verse if you want to circle it or underline it. This is Paul's big idea for this week and next week. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. By faith apart from works of the law. Now, next week, we're going to study the end of that verse. Apart from works of the law. Next week, we're going to talk about the sufficiency of faith, that faith and faith alone is all that is required for justification. That's next week. Before we get there, though, this week, I just want to focus on that one word, faith. What does faith mean? What does it mean to believe? Do we really understand what we're talking about when we use that word? Do we understand it well? So let's jump right in. Let's begin with a definition What does faith mean? Now, actually, in your Bibles, there's a couple different words that are used, translated either faith or belief. Pistis, that's a noun, translated faith in your Bibles. Pistuo, that's a verb, translated believe. And they both have the same idea. Biblical faith is conviction that something is true and therefore worthy of one's trust. It is conviction or, or assurance or persuasion. You could use that word. Persuasion that something is true, it is accurate, it is correct, and therefore, as a consequence, it is worthy of your trust, reliance, dependence. That's the idea of biblical faith. The conviction that something is true and therefore worthy of your trust. You see that idea of faith described by Paul in chapter 4, verse 21. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week, but Paul is going to raise up an example, a man named Abraham. Abraham was obviously a key figure in the Old Testament, for those of you who've read it. We meet him in Genesis chapter 12. His life becomes pivotal in Scripture. Paul will raise him up as an example, and he talks about Abraham's faith in verse 21. Look with me, chapter 4, verse 21. Paul gives us something very close to a definition of faith. Abraham being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. That's faith. It's the assurance or conviction or persuasion that God will keep his word. That what God has promised will be done. The author of Hebrews gives us a similar definition. Hebrews 11 chapter 1, really key verse. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. It's the conviction that something is true that you can't yet see. That's the idea of faith. Okay, so that's a definition for us, but that leads us to the second question. Okay, faith is a conviction that something is true. Well, what? Faith in what? Our part of justification. What do we need to believe in? What is it that we need to be convinced is true in order to be justified? What is the required content of faith for justification? What exactly do you have to believe in order to be saved? That's actually a really interesting question. Because as you look through scripture, you find out that depending on when you lived in biblical history, the answer changes. 
We are always justified by faith. Justification comes as a free gift through faith to everyone from Adam all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. It's always by faith, but the content of that faith has changed with time because God's revelation is progressive. Back in Genesis, they knew nothing about Jesus. They never heard of Jesus. They couldn't believe in Jesus because he hadn't been revealed yet. What actually did they have to believe back then? Well, Paul tells us by looking at Abraham. What did Abraham have to believe in order to be justified? Paul tells us, look at chapter 4, verse 18. It says of Abraham, in hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now, a little bit of background here. God made incredible promises to this man named Abraham in Genesis 12. Incredible promises, promises that are so significant, we now call them the Abrahamic covenant. These promises that came in covenant form to this man named Abraham that end up shaping the rest of biblical history. This covenant was founded upon promises, and the most important promise of all to Abraham was what? That you would have a son. Because when we meet Abraham in Genesis 12, he's an old man, and he and his wife are barren. They have never been able to have children. And in the ancient world, that was practically a death sentence. There was nothing worse than not having children. They actually assumed in the ancient world of 4,000 years ago that if you didn't have kids, you had been cursed by your deity. It was that serious. So Abraham is living what he believes to be a cursed life. He does not have children, and he and his wife are both way beyond childbearing years. And yet in the midst of that seeming hopelessness, God steps in. And he makes this incredible promise to Abraham. Many promises, but the focal promise, I will give you a child. And it tells us that for Abraham to be justified, the required content of faith was that he believed the promise. Abraham needed to believe that this God talking to him existed, that this is the creator God, and that he will fulfill his promises, particularly this promise to give Abraham a son. Now, that is exactly what Abraham believed. Look at verse 21. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Justification came when Abraham believed that God existed and would keep his promises. That was a required content of faith for Abraham. Now, what about us? We live way later in biblical revelation. We know tons more than Abraham did. So the required content of our faith is much larger than his. Paul actually tells us what the required content of our faith is, starting in the next verse, verse 23. Now, for his, now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. There it is right at the end. What do we have to believe in order to be justified? That Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. That is the required content for any human being today to be justified. You have to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. Peter himself actually makes that very crystal clear in Acts chapter 4. He says, of Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Living this side of the cross, the required content of faith for justification is belief that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You have to trust in his death and resurrection for payment of your sins. So that's what the content of faith is. Faith is to trust that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. It sounds simple enough. But if you go today and look at the bookshelves of Barnes & Noble, under the religion section, 
and you see what those books say about faith, you will see that there is a great deal of variety there. There's a lot of confusion about faith. There's a lot of misrepresentation and misunderstanding about this idea of faith. It's so crucial to our lives, and yet there's so many unclear things being said about it. So I want to take some time this morning to help clarify for you what faith is by showing you what it's not. I'm going to show you four things that faith is not so that you can better understand what biblical faith is. So let's start into that. Biblical faith. First, biblical faith is not a blind leap. So often I hear faith presented as if it was contrary to reason, as if faith was contrary to logic, as if faith was to abandon all reason and leap into the dark. That's not biblical faith. If that was biblical faith, then I would not be a Christian. I'm not going to entrust my eternal soul to something that is unreasonable. I won't even trust my mortal soul to something that's unreasonable. Back in college, I used to rock climb a lot. Now, rock climbing is a sport that requires faith. Every time you climb, you know you're going to fall at some point, and you are entrusting yourself to the strength of your rope and gear to save your life, to deliver your physical life. So it's a sport that requires faith, and yet every time I climbed, that was a faith that followed evidence. It was a highly reasonable faith. I was not leaping into the dark. Before I ever started rock climbing, I researched the gear. I made sure that the gear was rated to support me, that it would do what I wanted it to do. And then every time I went rock climbing, what did I begin with? I began with an inspection. I went through every foot of my rope. I looked through all of my gear. I verified that it looked like it was going to be able to support me. I gathered the evidence. And then having gathered the evidence, I took a reasoned, logical step of faith. Biblical faith is not a leap into the dark. Biblical faith gathers evidence. Biblical faith is highly reasonable. Biblical faith gathers evidence from creation. We saw that actually back in chapter 1, a verse that we only spent a moment on. Chapter 1, verse 20. Look at what Paul says. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. What Paul is saying is belief that God exists is not unreasonable. It's actually highly reasonable. God wants you to gather evidence. God wants you to go study creation. He wants you to study life. He wants you to study the world because he knows if you'll study the world with honest eyes, you will see him. You will see that he exists. You will see that it is reasonable to believe in God. He wants you to gather evidence from creation. He also wants you to gather evidence from history. He wants you to look at the historicity of scripture, the historicity of Jesus' death and resurrection. There is tons of evidence in history for our beliefs. One example, the, the pinnacle belief, the crux belief that Jesus rose from the dead. If you go out and gather historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, you will find ancient manuscripts that talk about it. You'll find archaeological evidence. You'll find eyewitness accounts. You can find lots of evidence in the flow of history and how nation states related to one another after the resurrection of Jesus. And what you will find, in my opinion, is that there is more historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ than against it. It is more a leap into the dark that believe that Jesus never rose from the dead than that he did. It is highly reasonable to have our beliefs. Our faith is not a leap against logic. It is a leap with logic. We gather the evidence. It is a highly reasoned belief. Okay, so faith is not the absence of reason. It is not a blind leap. 
Let me give you some, some resources. There may be some of you out here who, who want to know more about what I was just saying for the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus or the reliability of Scripture, the existence of God. A couple great resources for you to go to. That's a subject called apologetics, a, a defense of our beliefs, a defense of the reasonableness of Christianity. If you'd like to know more about that, more about why it is reasonable to believe what we believe. Uh, first place you can go is go to our website, click downloads, and under that is a, a line that says leader resources. Go to leader resources. Under that you'll find articles that we on the staff have written about the reliability of the New Testament, uh, proof for the resurrection or evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, uh, reliability of canonicity, why we have these particular books in our Bible, a number of different articles there that you can read that gives evidence for our faith. Now, you may have more detailed questions. You may have more far-reaching questions. I would encourage you, if that's the case, to go check out Probe Ministries. One of the best ministries I know of for apologetics, you just go to probe.org. They have countless articles and blogs and podcasts that defend the reasonableness of, of every part of Christianity. Great, great stuff on that website. So if you want to know more about why it is reasonable to believe what the Bible says, reasonable to believe what we believe, Go to these resources. Tons of great evidence out there. Faith is not a blind leap. But the opposite mistake is also often made. Faith is not a blind leap, but faith is also not proof. Faith is also not proof. Faith, Biblical faith is not certainty. Remember what Hebrews 11.1 1 said. Faith is the conviction, not, not the certainty, the conviction of things not yet seen. We are believing in things that we have not yet seen. So we can't prove our beliefs. We can prove that our beliefs are reasonable, but we cannot prove that they are absolutely true. When can we prove our beliefs? When you die. When you stand before Jesus and you see him face to face, then you'll be done with faith. You can set aside faith, and from that point forward in eternity, you will live by sight, not by faith. That's the great thing about faith. It's temporary, just for this life. When you see Jesus face to face, you will have proof, you can set faith aside, and you can live by sight. But we're not there yet. In this life, we have not yet seen Jesus, and so we live by faith. And when we live by faith in a broken world like this, it means that often our faith is going to be accompanied by doubt. Living in a broken world where we cannot yet prove our beliefs, we will often struggle with doubt, especially when life is hard, when life is painful, when we suffer, when it is disillusioning, many of us will struggle with doubt. We will wrestle with the truth of what we see in Scripture, with what God has promised us, with what Jesus has done. We'll wrestle with doubt. We'll struggle with doubt. And guess what? In the midst of that, I want you to know it's okay. So did pretty much everybody else in your Bible. All the great men and women through Scripture, so many of them struggled with bouts of doubt. I'll give you a few examples. Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, all of them wrestled huge with doubt. They struggled with doubt when life got hard. So have I. I have often struggled with doubt. I hope you know that for me as your pastor. I've often dealt with doubt because we all do. We don't live in the age of sight. We live in the age of faith. And when faith interacts with a broken world, we're going to struggle with doubt. And that's okay. It is okay to struggle with doubt because doubt is not the opposite of faith. That's a common misconception. People think that the opposite of faith is doubt. Well, no. Biblically speaking, the opposite of faith is disbelief. Disbelief is the settled choice to reject the revelation of God. That's what's opposite of faith. Doubt isn't disbelief. Doubt is the challenge to believe. Doubt is when you wrestle with your beliefs. You wrestle towards faith. That's doubt. And doubt is good. Doubt is okay. Doubt can exist side by side with faith. 
I like to illustrate it with a, looking at what it's like to get on an airplane. For many of us, we get on an airplane and we feel at least a moment of doubt, at least a moment of anxiety. Is this airplane going to convey me safely to my intended destination? That's especially true if you, try, if you fly out of Easterwood. Because Easterwood only flies those small little airplanes. And you get on those airplanes and they're, they're really narrow and they're really tiny. And, and, and you're getting ready to get on that plane. And for most of us, myself included, you just feel just at least a moment of anxiety and fear and doubt. Is this plane going to get me to Dallas safely? But in the midst of your doubts, you get on. And then the plane takes off and invariably you're going to hit a thunderstorm at some point in that little plane. And that's when your doubt's really going to take off. Your doubt is, is hitting the ceiling just like your head is. As you're going through that storm. You are scared. You are terrified. Guess what? It doesn't matter because you are on the plane. That was faith to get on the plane even in the midst of doubt. What would disbelief have been? Disbelief is to stay in the terminal in Easterwood. To say, I reject that plane, I'm not getting on, I'm going back. That's disbelief. That's not doubt. Doubt is to say, man, I struggle with this. This is hard to believe. This plane does not necessarily look airworthy, but I'm going to get on anyways. Faith is to get on even in the midst of doubt. So biblical faith is not proof. It's not certainty. It's to say that I have gathered the evidence and I am persuaded that this is true. And even though I am wrestling with doubts and I struggle in the midst of my uncertainties, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to trust in it. So biblical faith, it's neither a blind leap in the dark away from logic and reason, nor is it certainty or proof. It is simply trust. Trust in the reliability of this. Trust that it is true and worthy of my dependence. Okay, so that's the first contrast. Faith is neither a blind leap, nor is it certainty or proof. Second big contrast I want to draw for you. Faith is not just knowledge of facts. Faith is not simply knowledge of facts. Now, that said, faith is certainly dependent upon knowledge of facts. Our faith is based on some extremely important historical facts, like Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. Faith is founded upon facts, but knowledge of facts alone does not constitute faith. How do I know that? Because I've talked to lots of people, even lots of people on the Texas A&M campus, who will tell me that they believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. They believe in the historical facts of Jesus' death and resurrection. But then I'll ask them the key question, most important question you can ask a person. If you were to die this evening and stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? And they will tell me by pointing at themselves. Well, my good deeds. I go to church. I pray. Give to the poor. I'm a nice guy. I'm not as bad as that guy. As soon as they point to themselves when they answer my question, I know you do not have biblical faith. Because biblical faith is not just knowledge about Jesus. Biblical faith is trust. Remember, it's conviction that something is true and therefore worthy of my trust, worthy of my reliance. Biblical faith is to trust Jesus for salvation. To trust that his death and resurrection pays the full price of my sins. To rely upon him. That's biblical faith. Easiest way to illustrate it. Many of you have seen this before. Chair analogy. Now I've know a lot about these chairs. I was involved in the purchase of these chairs that you are sitting on. I happen to know lots of facts about these chairs. These are good chairs. We did not skimp on the seating in this room. Hope you know that. Uh, These are good chairs. These are strong chairs. It's a welded steel base under this. This chair is rated to hold many times my weight. This is a strong chair, and I have lots of knowledge about that fact, but have I exercised biblical faith yet? No. Knowledge about the chair is not faith. What is faith? Faith is sitting down. Faith is saying, my knowledge is now appropriated to me. 
I am choosing to trust in the ability of the chair to hold me up. That's biblical faith. I say not only that Jesus died and rose from the dead, but I'm trusting, I'm relying upon his death and resurrection to pay the penalty for my sins. I'm trusting in Jesus. That's biblical faith. So mere knowledge of facts is not enough. That's where faith begins. You have to know the facts, but then you have to trust. You have to make a decision to rely upon Jesus' death and resurrection as payment for your sins. That's biblical faith. So faith is not simply knowledge of facts. That's a mistake people make when they define faith too narrowly, too small. Lots of other people make the opposite mistake. They define faith too big. They throw things into biblical faith that aren't meant to belong there. We need to understand faith is not surrender or commitment. That's how it's often presented, though. That's, that's the presentation of lordship salvation. To, to believe, to have faith, means that you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and commit your life to him and surrender everything to him and commit to turn from your sins and follow him. Well, everything that I just said is good stuff. That's all stuff we should do. All of us should be surrendering to Jesus and committing to follow him. But those aren't faith. (laughs) That's not the definition of biblical faith. Biblical faith is simply trust. All those other things, surrender and commitment, those are things that should follow faith. For the rest of my life, every day I should be surrendering and committing myself to Jesus. But that's not faith. Biblical faith is simply trust. Biblical faith is simply receiving from God what Jesus has done. That's an important thing to understand. Biblical faith is not what I promise to give to Jesus. Biblical faith is receiving what Jesus has given to me. Biblical faith is all about reception. I receive the gift he has made. It's put this way in the book of John. But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Biblical faith is not about what I give or promise to Jesus. It's about what Jesus gives to me, which is eternal life through his death and resurrection. So biblical faith is not just knowledge of facts, but it is also not surrender and commitment. It is simply trust, simply reliance upon Jesus's death and resurrection as payment for my sins. So I hope that this has helped put faith together for you by correcting four common misconceptions. Biblical faith is not a blind leap away from logic, yet it is also not certainty and proof, not this side of heaven. And at the same time, biblical faith is not simply knowledge of facts, nor is it surrender and commitment. It is simply trust. Trust that Jesus' death and resurrection pays the penalty for my sins. Okay, so that's what faith is. Now, what does faith result in? That's where I want to move to now. What does Paul tell us comes of faith? What are the results of biblical faith? Well, look with me, starting in chapter 4, in verse 3. Paul says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing to the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. The key word here, justified. When you believe, the result is justification. We've talked about that, but Paul gives us two more really important pieces of information about justification. This legal standing of righteousness, when God declares us righteous, Paul tells us two really important things about justification in this passage. First of all, he wants us to understand clearly, who is it that justifies it? Is it me by my faith? No, 
It's God. Common misconception. We need to understand. It is not your faith that saves you. It is not your faith that justifies you. What saves you? What justifies you? God. It's a person. God saves you. It says specifically, God is the one who credits faith as righteousness. God is the one who does not credit your sin but gives you forgiveness. God is the one who saves. So your justification rests on God's shoulders, not on the shoulders of your faith. That's really significant. Because if you believe that it was your faith that saved you, then every time your faith wavers, every time you struggle with doubt, what would you be tempted to assume? Must not be saved. Must have either lost my salvation or never had it to begin with. But your, your faith is not what saves you. Faith is what God requires for salvation. What is it that he's looking down and needs to see? He needs to see faith. That's what, he's, that's what he is waiting to see before he justifies. But it is not your faith that brings justification. It's just like the airplane example again. Once you get on that plane and you are flying to Dallas and you are in that turbulence, what is it that keeps you up in the air? Is it your faith in the plane? no. The plane could care less whether you believe in it or not. The plane is going to keep you in the air because it's a plane. That's what it does. Your safety depends upon the plane, not upon your confidence in the plane. So it is with your justification, your salvation. Your continued salvation does not depend upon your continued strength of faith. It depends upon your Savior, God, who does not waver, who is never weak. Your justification rests on his shoulders. It is not your faith that justifies you. It is God who justifies you when he sees faith. Faith is simply what he's looking for. Then he steps in. Okay, so first thing that Paul wanted us to understand, not your faith that saves you, it's God. It's not your faith that brings justification. It's God who brings it to you when he sees the faith. Second thing that Paul talks to us about is how. How is it that God justifies us? What is going on in justification? Paul talks about this key word, credit. You may have seen that over and over again. I was reading credited. Uh, That word actually appears 11 times in this passage. Really uh, frequent word. Credited is the Greek word legizomai, and it's actually an accounting term. So for you who are accountants, this is your word. Legizomai means to credit. It means to credit to someone's account. It pictures a ledger. God has a ledger in heaven, and you are one line of that ledger. Now, the bad news is, before faith, your ledger looked awful. Your account was covered in red ink. You had no credits. You had no assets. All you had was debt. From one end of the ledger sheet to the other, it was all red ink. Your standing with God legally was debtor, sinner. That's bad news. Good news is, God offers justification. What is justification? When God sees your faith, he looks down at his ledger, takes out his divine eraser, and removes all the red ink. It's gone. The debt of sin is erased. Verses 7 and 8. God no longer credits, legizomai, our sin against us. The debt is removed. It is stripped away. And what does God replace? He doesn't leave you a blank ledger. No, he writes down the word righteous. So sin is removed and righteous is replaced. Your ledger now reads black. It says righteous all the way across it. When God sees faith, he accredits it as righteousness. That's a really significant thing. Really significant. I don't know if you, you see how significant that is yet. What is the one thing that's required to spend eternity with God? Righteousness. You have to be righteous. God cannot welcome sin into his presence. If you are not righteous, you can't be with God. That's a problem for us because we can't make righteousness. We can't do the whole righteous thing. 
Year after year, we prove that we fall short of righteousness. So we can't give him what he requires. And so instead, he gives it to us. He offers us the standing of infinite righteousness. And all we have to give to him is simply faith. That's the exchange he makes. We offer faith, he gives righteousness. That's incredible. What an exchange. Faith brings righteousness. Now, for you who are accountants, that should lead you to ask, well, how is this not cooking the books? How is God not cooking the books when he accepts faith, this little thing called faith, and gives it down or writes it down as infinite righteousness? How can God make that exchange without cooking the books? Well, the answer is Jesus. Jesus was faithful in our place. Jesus' death pays for all the debt that could ever be made by any human being. He pays the full debt in his death on the cross and in his faithful life he earned infinite righteousness so that God can justly, righteously declare sinners to be righteous. God can righteously erase the debt on your account and replace it with righteousness because Christ died in your place. That's how God can offer you justification without cooking the books because Jesus did it for you. Jesus was faithful for you in life and in death so that God can erase your debt and replace it with infinite righteousness. And all that he requires is simply that you trust, that you believe. The moment you believe the gospel, God credits your account forever. It's done. The debt is gone. It's replaced with righteousness. That is your standing and God's account forever. That's the good news of the gospel. You can right now be eternally righteous with God simply through faith. And that leads us to the application this morning. First question I would ask you is, have you believed? Have you believed this good news? Have you at some point in your life trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation? Again, the way to determine that is to ask yourself that question I said a moment ago. If you were to die today and stand before God in heaven and he asked, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer? If you point to anything about you, If you even point to Jesus plus you, if you stand next to Jesus and look at both of us, if you're involved in the equation at all, then you have not yet believed. You're still trusting at least partially in yourself. That's not biblical faith. What God is calling you to do this morning is to quit trying to earn it, quit trying to be part of the solution, simply trust that God has provided all of the solution in Jesus Christ. Rely upon Jesus' death and resurrection in your place. Now, if there's something that's keeping you from believing that, Something, maybe an intellectual objection, maybe it's something in your past, some experience, whatever it might be. If there is something keeping you from trusting that Jesus' death and resurrection pays the full penalty of your sin, please come talk to one of us this morning. We would love to talk to you about that. We want you to know how you can receive this incredible free gift of righteousness. Also, you can check out those resources. If you want to know more about the the reasons to believe in the gospel, check out those resources on our website or at Probe Ministries or come talk to one of us. We'd love to talk to you about that. Now, for those of us who have believed, the question for us is, are we growing in faith? Because we're not done with faith yet. The moment you believe in God, you don't finish the race of faith. No, faith is something God wants from you from then on. Now, faith going up or down doesn't change whether or not you're saved. Again, you're already on the airplane. So even, though if, you're, even if your faith does not grow, you're, you're in the airplane, you're saved. But God wants your faith to grow. He wants your trust to grow so that you can experience more and more of his blessings. Actually, we're going to see next week where Paul goes at the end of the chapter. He's going to talk about Abraham late in life. At about 80, 85 years old in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham heard the promise of God, believed it, and we're told he was justified. At that moment, he was declared righteous by God. That's not what Paul talks about. Paul looks 15 years later. Abraham's 100 years old. 
And he talks about how Abraham's faith as a believer, he's rightly related to God, how his faith has grown. And as a result of his faith growing, his trust deepening in the Lord at 100 years old, God steps in and gives him a son. He gives him Isaac. What Paul is telling us is that for us who are believers, God's challenge for us is to continue to grow in faith. When God looks down from heaven, what he wants primarily for every one of us is trust. Today, what God wants from you right now, even if you're already a believer, is more faith. That's what he's looking for. It's faith that pleases God. It's trust that pleases him. Now, God does want surrender and obedience and all of those things. We'll talk about that as Romans unfolds. But first and foremost, above all else, and actually the foundation of everything else, God wants trust. He wants us to grow in our trust in him. That's what life is all about. God's promises, God's blessings, God's grace is always received through faith. Faith is the one fundamental, essential key every day for the rest of your life to enjoying the grace of God. Faith. Will you trust him? Will you trust him today to take care of you, provide for you, be good to you, watch over you? Will you trust? That's what God is looking for. Now, that's not easy. We live in a broken world. We live in a difficult world. So let's close by going to the Lord and praying that he would help grow our faith so that we would be people who trust. Heavenly Father, thank you first and foremost that you offer this free gift of justification, of eternal righteousness as a gift. Thank you that it's not something that we have to earn. Thank you that it's not something that you hold out for us that that, that we can never get to. Thank you, Lord, that you give it to us. You simply give it to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for the death and resurrection of your son that makes that possible. Lord, without Jesus, we would have no hope. Without Jesus, we would still, all of us, be under your wrath. Thank you that your own son willingly lived for us and then died for us. Thank you that you raised him from the dead, conquering sin and death for us. Thank you for all that Jesus has done for us. And Father, we come before you this morning and we pray, first and foremost, Lord, for anyone in this room who has not yet trusted in the gospel, Father, we lift them up to you. We pray that you would remove the intellectual objections, that you would remove the hang-ups in their past, that you would remove whatever it is that is keeping them from simply believing that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. Please let this be the day of their salvation. Lord, give them the the willingness to step out and, and to ask for help from those of us here who can help them to wrestle with their doubts. Please, Lord. Let this be the day of their salvation. For the rest of us, Lord, who who have made that choice to trust in Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would grow our faith. We pray that day in and day out, even as we wrestle with doubt, we pray that you would move us forward, that you would grow and develop our faith, that we would be people who truly and completely trust you. Father, please let us be a people of faith. We pray that as we have faith, as we have trust, Lord, we pray that you would do amazing supernatural things in our midst, Lord. Not things that just bless us, but things that bless this community, that bless this world. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified through us by growing us in faith and trust. Thank you most of all again for your son. In his perfect name, we pray. Amen.